Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The new fully electric Audi e-tron GT. Enjoy the breathtaking performance and design of the future of electric mobility from Audi. With Quattro-inspired flared wheel arches and matrix design LED headlights, every element has been carefully considered and selected to help deliver a thrilling drive. And with an acceleration of 0 to 100 kilometers per hour in 4.1 seconds, the Audi e-tron GT is performance electrified. Start the future now and visit audi.ca to learn more. When a gnarly heat dome swept over Western Canada last month, it roasted cherries right on the branch, cooked oysters in their shell, even though they were buried in the Pacific Ocean, and in general, killed so many plants that we rely on for food. I'm Gabe Friedman, and the topic of this week's Down to Business is what climate change means for Canada. My guest is Lenore Newman, director of the Food and Agricultural Institute at the University of Fraser Valley in British Columbia. Newman said indoor farming has developed to the point that Canada could soon produce its own leafy greens and vegetables during the winter and all year, really, if we build giant vertical plant factories. While I don't associate culinary excellence with factories, she assured me that the quality of produce is top-notch and that these facilities could be extremely beneficial for the economy and the environment. We started our discussion by talking about the mega drought currently underway in California, which seems like a long way from Canada. But in the globalized economy, it's closer than we think. As always, the interview was edited for clarity and brevity. Hey, Lenore, thanks for coming on Down to Business. Oh, so great to be here today. Cool. So British Columbia, and I guess really Canada, is at least a thousand kilometers away from California. But you've written that California is facing a climate change catastrophe that has dire implications for Canada. Can you explain what did you mean by that? Yes, that's uh, correct. And uh, the basic problem is, even though Canada is one of the world's biggest food producers, we're highly reliant on areas like California for our greens, for uh, leafy vegetables, for small fruit, to the point where we're absolutely critical Then in our winter, we're getting these imports. And the problem is... We're quite worried that uh, these disruptions in California will follow us along the chain <laughs> and uh, impact the amount of food that, uh, that we're getting. And we already have a really hard time getting fresh, healthy vegetables to a lot of our rural regions. And so we need to figure out a domestic solution to this. And so here in BC, even though BC is quite fertile, we do still buy $2 billion worth of California produce a year, mostly um, lettuce, strawberries, etc. And yeah, that's reasonably at risk right now. Wow. And so how do you see that playing out? Well, when I look at California and the damage they're seeing due to drought, due to extreme weather, due to heat... I really look at that. And also, of course, water is such an issue in the West, even before climate change. 
when I go to the store in the middle of winter and buy, you know, a head of lettuce, that lettuce is like 80% California water. I am literally buying water from California and then bringing it here to British Columbia and eating it. I mean, there's almost a moral imperative to quit stealing water from California in my salad. And this was one of the points that, um, you know, my colleague Evan Fraser at Guelph and I came up with was environmentally, this makes no sense because we're completely capable now of producing these crops locally year round indoors in a much more environmentally friendly way. What, what are some of the obstacles that are stopping us from doing that? Well, it's interesting because the truth is that until fairly recently, indoor agriculture in some of these crops couldn't really compete. And now we already grew most of our cucumbers and tomatoes indoors and a lot of our peppers because it makes sense. We do have a pretty strong greenhouse industry in Canada. But in the last few years, we've seen, especially in places like the Netherlands, Japan, Singapore, the development of these vertical agriculture farms, or sometimes they're called plant factories in Asia, these intensive operations that use artificial lighting with you know, light-emitting diodes, so LEDs, and that produce really efficiently and intensely to the point where if we had a few hundred acres in the large mainland of British Columbia of these structures, we could pretty well cover all of our leafy green needs and our uh, small fruit needs. And it is now economically viable to do so. And so the obvious question is then, well, why is no one doing it? Well, the truth is a lot of companies are trying because, you know, the market is trying to fill the need. But there's, there's some stickiness for sure. And the first thing is kind of boring, but it's something I think about a lot of, which is zoning, um, which uh, is an interesting one because zoning for an indoor farm can be quite tricky because they didn't exist on this scale even 10 or 20 years ago. So here in British Columbia, one of the biggest challenges that the industry is facing is that the agricultural zoning is very tight. And even though you could build an indoor chicken farm, because that existed when the zoning was written, you can't build an indoor lettuce farm easily. So one of the challenges is working with the government to try and change that because you also can't build these farms in most industrial areas because most industrial areas don't allow for agricultural production. And so you get this catch-22 where you're like, where am I going to put my indoor farm? And the answer is, well, nowhere. <laughs> so it's boring and I'm sure we'll solve it. But <laughs> zoning is, uh, yeah, it's one of these problems. It seems like such a mundane problem, given the sort of scale of the challenge, you know, feeding the country or, you know, maybe other parts of the world. I want to go back, though. You mentioned like agricultural plant factories. It sounds like these could have a lot of big impacts on like energy. And I, I was wondering sort of what some of the impact might be from that perspective. Well, in the long run, the environmental footprint of such production is much better. The reason why indoor agriculture has such potential is multifold. So number one, it solves a really thorny labor problem in that uh, it's very hard to find farm workers these days because it's dangerous, it's poorly paid, and it's highly seasonal work. Whereas working in a plant factory, it can be much nicer. It can be 
higher paid and it's also year round because you're producing 24 seven. It also eliminates the long distance element because you can literally build one of these in every town. And so, you know, for us here in Canada, if you think about the logistics of bringing lettuce from California, if we didn't already do it, we probably would look at it and say, no, that's insane. There's got to be a better way. It also is incredibly water efficient to the point that a really good vertical agriculture setup will use no excess water other than the water that heads out in the produce itself. So the numbers are a bit mind-boggling because what you do is the water in the air, you recapture it as you uh, recirculate the air. It condensates out and you can put it back into the system. And you also have no need for pesticide, no need for herbicide, and you get a much cleaner product, a much lower risk of um, you know the various nasties we can pick up on our salad greens. So there's a lot of pluses. However, historically, the one thing that held it back was that energy use because the economics just didn't work. But LEDs are getting much more efficient and they're most of the energy cost. They're about 80% of the energy cost. And so in jurisdictions with a lot of electricity, especially a lot of green electricity, say here in BC, um, all our electricity is hydro, for example, and we do have surplus, it starts to become a really nice option. And as energy costs keeps coming down, it becomes a better option for more and more crops. And, you know, I mean, I'm realistic. We're not going to, say, move our potato crop indoors because it wouldn't make any sense. They grow really nicely outside. But anything that's really delicate, that grows fast, that, you know, you can get a quick turnaround on, it's just, it's a better idea. And there's a reason we grow most of our cucumbers and tomatoes indoors. Is because it works better. It's more efficient. It's more environmental. And the the labor situation is better. So I think we're going to see a lot more of this fairly rapidly just because those technologies are getting cheaper and easier to source. That's interesting. And and are Canada's food sales, like our sort of agricultural food production, is that growing? Actually, yes. Um, The industry has grown somewhat of late. Although it's a bit hard to tell for sure. But I mean, globally, we dominate in grains and pulses. And we're not going to grow those inside. Really, these are products, you know, that sort of indoor production is really for domestic consumption. It's about looking to provide our own needs. And one of the hopes is because in the winter, even in major cities here, the produce isn't very good because it's come all the way from Mexico or California. One of the hopes is If we have better quality, people might actually eat more fruits and vegetables, which is an outcome that we want because, you know, I'm sure you've had that experience where, you know, it's the middle of January and you go to like a buffet back when we had buffets and you see a strawberry that, you know, tastes just like wood because it's January. And so you don't eat it. Yeah. My experience with some of the indoor grown lettuces has been mixed. I think there are some higher quality ones, but there's also some that like smell a little funny. I've wondered about the nutrient quantity and the taste and things. Has the taste and the sort of growing quality improved significantly? Yeah, radically. And a lot of that is being driven overseas by the Japanese and by the Dutch. 
is that really you can tweak the nutrients and the flavor profile to be whatever you want. It's just we really hadn't learned how to do that yet, and we're getting better and better. There are a lot of, uh, say, research programs going on right now about how to tweak salt content is a really big one because uh, some vegetables actually have a surprising amount of salt in them. And we can tweak to provide a lower salt alternative. You also can tweak the flavor both with the hydroponics, but also with the lighting, which is really interesting. You know, you can make the plant sweeter, for example, depending on what kind of lighting profile you're using. That is so bizarre that you can change the light, the color of the light. It can actually result in different tastes. Exactly. So, I mean, what we can say, it's not your grandfather's hydroponics. We'll put it that way. And we're learning a lot about how to do this right. And, you know, really, it's, to me, one of the biggest benefits. It allows us to free up field space because it's so much more intensive that we can on one acre do what would take 50 acres outdoors. And so we can free that land up to uh, return to wilderness and hopefully address some of our horrible climate problems. Right. And I want to ask you about climate change. We saw in BC that there was this incredible heat wave that sort of swept over the entire part of Western Canada, set new records. What sort of impact is climate change already having on agriculture in Canada? Yes, it, uh, the heat dome was, um, it opened a lot of people's eyes. And it's an interesting one because I usually say that agriculture is very resilient. And, you know, we we are addressing climate change because we have to, and people are looking to making their crops and their animals more resilient to climate change and to look at higher temperatures. However, that said, the heat dome we experienced was so extreme that it's not really survivable in the long term for the industry if that becomes a regular thing. Like if we start having those a couple of times a season, there's no adapting to that. And so it's quite frightening. And it was about 10 degrees Celsius or, you know, roughly 20 degrees Fahrenheit over normal. And so suddenly, I mean, it was hot. It was, it was really hot. And what we started to see was really extreme crop failure. The one that really boggled my mind was we lost a lot of our oyster farm, which I would have thought they'd have been fine because they're physically in the ocean, but they actually cooked in the shell. We had uh, cherries cooking on the tree. We had a lot of the berries. Um, they looked like they were blowtorched. Um, there was a lot of plant death, which is really bad for farmers doing perennial crops. Part of the reason it's so bad here is we do cool weather crops because, hey, it's Canada. And so they're not supposed to be hot. <laughs> and once that heat dome moved onto the prairies, we saw mass crop loss canola and a lot of the grains just dried up. Anything that wasn't irrigated was in big trouble. And so, yeah, you have farmers with 20%, 30% loss, if not more. And now we have, you know, extreme fire situation. The province just declared a state of emergency yesterday because there are so many fires and fire is the ultimate enemy of farming. <laughs> It's, you can't move your farm out of the way. And yeah, the heat dome gives me pause because models really didn't predict that that was like if you'd have told me before this that it could 
be over 40 degrees in Vancouver, Canada, I would probably have told you, no, that's ridiculous. We're next to the Pacific Ocean. How could it possibly get that hot? But it did. Wow. And, you know, here in my neighborhood, it, we peaked at about 41, 42 degrees Celsius. And, and what, it's normally in the 20s at this time of year? Normally in the 20s, a very hot day is about 30. My God. And so, yeah, about 10 degrees Celsius above normal. Um, you know, the, the town of Lytton set three consecutive records for the hottest temperature ever recorded at that latitude. And then the town burnt down completely. Wow. Which is yeah, it's kind of like an allegory for climate change. Yeah. And right now, as we're speaking, all around the world, we're seeing these incredibly intense events, flooding, heat. And it's not really following what it's we thought, I mean, because, you know, farming, we were ready for the idea we were going to have to adapt, maybe move crops around, maybe irrigate more. But this heat dome is very frightening. And, you know, it's another reason why moving some crops indoors is probably a really good idea at this point. You know, number one, it actually is going to help the climate issue because we won't be trucking things from California. Yeah. But on the other side, those lettuce indoors would have been quite fine through this. I mean, you know, you just crank the AC up a little bit higher and you're okay. Yeah. A lot of people tune out when it comes to where their food comes from. I think sometimes you hear about people shopping at farmers markets or certain more expensive grocery stores because they think it comes from smaller farms. What do you think about the quality of the debate about our food supply chain, sort of from a very big picture perspective? It's a it's a tough question because overall, I love it when people care about food. It's such a, a good thing overall. But I will say that in North America, and this is a very North American thing, we do encounter an interesting kind of almost politicized romanticism around food that can be a bit dangerous. And, you know, I like farmer's markets. I go to farmer's markets. They're a key part of building a local food system. But what I don't like is it's increasingly polarized where people are arguing, well, no, you can't use technology. We have to go back to like the 1920s and farm that way. Well, the climate is not a 1920s climate anymore. And also the 1920s farming methods couldn't have fed the number of people we have. To me, the sweet spot is using both. And the model I really like is the idea of you use all the ag tech you have. You use a ton of ag tech to get farming to have a smaller footprint because right now the food system covers about 40% of the Earth's land surface, which is just too much. And if we shrink that down, then what you do is on, you know, the sort of all called alternative farming movement side, if you then shift your intensive land production to regenerative agriculture, which is becoming quite popular, it works. If you produce intensively indoors and do a lot of plant-based and then all the, uh, the other agriculture, you shift to more regenerative, you know, to more eco-friendly, that combination works. And the problem is there is definitely a small but very vocal group of people that should be allies of building a good food system for everyone who oppose all technology just because. And yet what drives me nuts is they're quite happy to buy a Tesla, which is a giant piece of technology. They're quite happy to use their iPhones. 
they're quite happy to turn the lights on and not use like old timey electricity. They, it's about food. And it is true that food's very emotional. People get caught up in food, but they, they have to educate themselves and realize, look, all agriculture is technology, every piece of it. And even, you know, when I see a farm that's a little, a little more old school, a little smaller production, it's still using a ton of technology to make it work. And nothing good will come out of polarizing a false dichotomy in this. We all have to work together because, to be honest, and a lot of my colleagues and I have been talking about this this year in particular, we're in trouble. And if we want to keep everyone fed at a reasonable cost, keep them healthy, we have to use every tool we have. And that's both technology and local production. You know, I like to joke that my particular brand of agricultural future means everyone dislikes me because I'm calling for local production, but at a big scale. And so somehow I've instantly alienated everyone, but I still say it's a good way to go. Well, it's a really interesting future and conversation. And I think people are going to be talking about it, you know, as things progress. So I'm so I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. So happy to join and, you know, hope everyone is staying safe in the various stream weather events uh, near you. Same, Lenore. Thanks again. That was Lenore Newman, director of the Food and Agricultural Institute at the University of Fraser Valley in British Columbia. Thanks for listening to Down to Business this week. And thanks to everyone who shared this episode or rated us on a podcast app. Thanks to Bryce Hall for music and production, Yudula Hussein for editing, and Victoria Wells for web support. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll be back next week. But until then, you can find your business news at financialpost.com or at any one of our five weekly newsletters covering the economy, energy, finance, the workplace, and investing.